0: Coming up on The Payoff, this is a special one. We've had athletes, we've had musicians, we have had successful business people, we have had actors, but we have never had a doctor. And Dr. Nishant P is an accomplished surgeon, and he was also a very accomplished alcoholic. He's got experience with years of sobriety, and his story is unbelievable. He has an ability to articulate the message in his journey which really connects. It connected to me. This is a lot of wreckage we cover in his story. Uh, he was an alcoholic that developed a, a physical dependency on alcohol, uh, which led to lost opportunities, going on rounds uh, with bottles of vodka. Never perform, performed surgery drunk, but uh, you know, got a DUI where he was like a .45, which should be a dead person. Um, and then he got sober. And he talks about, the disappointment he had uh, as far as his parents were concerned, them being disappointed in him and him kind of feeling that to this day. But we kind of stumbled upon the fact that, oh, by the way, his parents, when he was talking to me on this podcast, were sitting in his house uh, visiting with him, taking care of one of his children. And that is the payoff right there. Those connections, those relationships, those real things. Um, And this is a real alcoholic with a real great story. Nishant does a great job of breaking down what it's like to work in a profession where it's so ego-based and ego-driven, the medical field, especially being a surgeon. But at the same time, when you're an alcoholic trying to get sober, you have to surrender. And that's something he did. And he's just incredibly humble and has a great story. Also, some great music. Here's my man, Kevin Souza. Nashant.
1: Hey Pete. How's it going? How's
0: it going, dude? Good. Right. Um where are you where are you right now?
1: Uh, Virginia. I, I moved to Charlottesville, Virginia from LA back in January.
0: Oh no way. So you're j went to school at the University of Richmond.
1: Oh, did you? Nice. Yeah. Um yeah. So that's like an hour we go down there a a lot. Um I'm at UVA. Yeah, academic is uh it's where I'm at for now. Um, there's a lot of kind of new challenges with academic medicine, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, I like to teach for the most part. So teaching where is and med students. So that's, that's what I do here mostly.
0: Do you still practice?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm super busy, but the, the residents are just part of it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you are an endocrinologist, right? Or endo urologist. Correct. So what'd you go to 17 years of school?
1: So after college, it was, uh, let's see, two thousand. Or 2017, yeah, 13 years after, uh, after college, yeah.
0: So 13 years after college, where'd you go to undergrad?
1: University of Arizona.
0: Oh, okay, in Tucson. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, undergrad and med school at U- University of Arizona.
0: And are you from Arizona?
1: I am, I grew up in northern Arizona.
0: Okay, well, as I was saying earlier, you're our first doctor, so thank you very much. Um, yeah, of course. For breaking the mold. So talk to me a little bit about your upbringing. You grew up in a traditional Indian family, right?
1: I did. Yeah, my parents moved here uh, in the late '70s from India. Um, my dad moved to Chicago, and you know it was it was difficult. Not didn't come with much money, not a lot of uh, means, and he tried a few residencies out, got fired from a couple, didn't like the other ones, and you know eventually got a position at University of Chicago. Um, that's where my brother and I were born. Um, and he continued to move around until he got the right job, which was in a town in Northern Arizona, Prescott, Arizona. It was like 20,000 people or something like that back in the late eighties. And we were one of the few Indian families there. Um, so we moved when we were young. So it's all I knew. What the hell is that? Uh, like? What but, is
0: that? What is that like growing up? You, yeah. I <laughs> mean, like, you know, you, 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 must feel unique uh how does that affect a young person emotionally
1: it yeah i you know I had a good childhood if I think back on it i you know I, a lot of other of my friends' colleagues uh in recovery out of recovery did, didn 't have great childhood but when I think back on it i I had a really good childhood you know we we grew up kind of in the woods I had tons of friends there was occasional issues with being you know different uh some like, really just minor racism stuff because we were the only Indian family, mostly confusion of what I was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but I had, I had lots of friends that, you know, stuck up for me. It was, you know, I don't, I can look on that time and say, you know, it was a, it was a good time.
0: It's crazy uh, too. But, like, cause I had a pretty good upbringing. I mean, I had a really good upbringing. There was alcoholism in my family, which kind of, played out as it did a little bit around the household and certainly in me. Uh, But I don't have any, I don't have any, I don't have any excuses, you know?
1: Right. Yeah. Um, the, the growing up was fine, but there was still, and it's just a common theme with alcoholics. It's just being different, just feeling it, you know, even though, you know, you have, you have friends, sleepovers, parents are, you know, you had a good relationship with your parents. It's just this inherent, differentness, your uniqueness, um, that I think is common with a, with a lot of our, uh, alcoholics that I know.
0: As the terminal uniqueness.
1: Yeah, it's a terminal uniqueness.
0: What did you feel like when you took your first drink or drugs? Or First of all, are drugs a part of your story or just alcohol?
1: It's alcohol, yeah. It was, you know, it, going to high school, college, certainly there was, dabbling and the other things but alcohol was definitely the the thing um and i i was 15 you know my parents are not drinkers at all but they had it for guests it wasn't like i was surrounded by it um i you know i've heard i've probably heard the term alcoholic and you know had this vision that most people have that aren't familiar with alcoholics of you know some homeless guy on the streets. and but when i did drink it you know I had, I had that moment that is so you know well described <laughs> by our sort of, Oh, this is it. This yeah. is the thing that, that's, that's going to help me out. Um, now, now I feel welcome. Right. Um, and it was just off to the races. I remember the, the first time was we took some, oh God, I don't even know this old scotch and it was out of my parents' gazebo. And, uh, you know, I came home, I woke my cousin up and said he just clocked me right then and there.
0: Um, <laughs> he hit you? and then,
1: yeah, I woke him up at like 3am and be like, Hey, I'm drunk. Uh, and he wasn't having any of it. And so I, uh, passed out of my bed, puked, woke up in the morning. I was like, I feel, I feel bad, but I'd like to do this again, you know, almost immediately. Um, and that's, that's just not a normal response. And I kind of in high school, you know, started going to all these parties and I would be the guy, I would be that guy that just got, you know, completely obliterated, passed out. And then I started doing this weird thing where, uh, you know, if I thought if I got passed out, people would take care of me, I would fake being passed out. So that's like immediate pathology right there. Yeah. So Uh, you you would fake being
0: passed out kind of to get, maybe get get attention or just to be treated a different way.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I was, you know, but like fully aware of what's going on, but like eyes closed and like limp, uh, (laughs) you know, being carried out, but like feeling like a king while that was, while that was happening. It Um, it makes, it
0: makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah. I'm like, here I am. I'm, this is it. This is how it should be. Um, (laughs) and you know, the whole time I'm doing this, um, I'm I'm excelling at school because I you know I, I had wanted to be a doctor since I was four. My dad's a doctor, but there wasn't really any push from my family.
0: So there was no. I pr- wanted like, oh, oh, to ask you. There's no pressure yeah. on you to become a doctor. Yeah,
1: yeah. It wasn't like oh this pressure is killing me. Um, it wasn't. Uh, and you know, going, you know, I got in trouble with the law at an early age. Uh, you know, underage drinking, trespassing, all those sorts of things which kept me out of a, a lot of the, you know, other schools that I applied to. Um, and I ended up staying in state, which was great. I actually loved that school. Um, Where else did you and, apply?
0: Did you, first of all, you knew you wanted to be a doctor.
1: Yeah. So I was applying, like I had the grades and the scores and all this stuff, but there's like the, these these legal <laughs> issues on my record that were very evident and very recent. Um, you know, like Stanford, UCLA, all these other places. Um, and it just, it just wasn't going to happen. Like there's a screening process and it it didn't work out, but I ended up going to the you know, state school where it was my first time really out of the house in the dorm. And, you know, when you're, when you feel like you're free and unsupervised or alcoholic things can really go off the rails. Um, and it turned into more binge drinking because I, I was very serious about school I recall, but there was a lot of a lot of binge drinking happening in in college, definitely.
0: When, and yeah, go ahead. No, just when you talk about it's because this happened to me too uh, in another way. But right away, as a kid, you know you're you're experiencing it was obviously looking back now sober was kind of meant to be probably going to the university of arizona and staying in state but like right away like we get we get consequences early on and we just blow right yeah. by them you know like oh like yeah it's, it's like it's like ah like whatever or but at the same time like early on your drinking was affecting what you were going to do uh, it's uh it, it, right. it, it dictated it it did
1: um and then i'd be like you know the- they don't understand don't they see these scores and these um you know grades? Uh and it, it doesn't it doesn't take a genius to figure out that this you know, I may be a problem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so when you're when you're in college and it starts to kind of like you mentioned, the binge drinking it kinda goes off the rails. What starts to happen?
1: Uh getting, you know, I didn't get a DUI yet, uh, but definitely, you know, sleeping in my car. Uh, there was some other trespassing, drunk in public, disorderly conduct. And th- these are mostly happening on the weekends. And then, you know, I'm, I'm still pulling the grades and doing all this stuff. And that was my justification to myself to continue both things. You know, um, my friends describe me as a guy. The one word they use is more. Um, like I just want more and I can, if I can do both these things, then why the hell not? Um, you know, I, I don't know moderation. All I know is extreme. Um, that's, that's kind of my way of drinking, my way of doing life. And it's, it's something that I just have to, I've had to come to terms with like being aware of my own, own extremeness, um, and that, that the effect it has on other people man, I disregarded that for so long. You know, I'm like, people are going to have to deal with me. I'm going to be me. And there's, you know, I'm, I'm one of these extreme people. And if they can't, if they can't deal with it, so what? Um, that was, that was, you know, uh, my MO. That's and we'll, a get, lot of stuff.
0: we'll get to more of it down the line, but it sounds yeah. like you, you speak like a guy who got the gift of perspective, right? Because when we're getting drunk, uh, for me, at least, uh, and, and you're bottoming out like I had no perspective on anything going on r- around me and right. getting sober part of our program. I, I take a look at myself and I really am enabled to get some perspective on, on the fact that, dude, you know, it's empowering to know that I'm a creature that needs more. Because, uh, right. you know, you don't beat the shit out of yourself. You're like, man. I, I sometimes I just amaze myself. I keep going back for the ice cream. I'm like, dude, you know, like this is, <laughs> this is pretty crazy. Uh, and I get yeah. a kick out of it. But I, you know, before it was just like I had no clue. I would just keep consuming and consuming.
1: Yeah, and um, it took you know a couple days of I'd stop. Took a couple of days. I feel pretty good. Let's
0: let's see what happens this time. Were, were your parents at all like? you know, disappointed, because you mentioned they weren't drinkers. Uh, Did your culture play into that at all? As far as it
1: did? Yeah, they're very religious. And, you know, they were just wondering, like, what, what's wrong? Um, You know, what, what do you need? And they, they didn't know, but I would, you know, this is when it started having kind of physical impacts as well. My, I have, you know, I have a very strong physical addiction to alcohol, where, I will drink very heavily and try to stop, and I've had to be admitted a dozen times for withdrawals, and um, you know, in the emergency room, uh, they had to call my parents. They show up because they always show up. That's the thing. Um, it was uh, unwavering, unconditional support, which, which just you know, hurts me now that I you know I think back on it. It was. They were always there for me. They didn't know how to help, but they were physically present.
0: Are they alive um, today?
1: They are. They're alive. They're actually visiting me now. They're they're sitting there with my baby down downstairs, and dude, yeah, that's a, that's to that a gift of sobriety. Yeah, that. But that's a <laughs> yeah.
0: gift of sobriety. Like you know, for, it's like uh, whether you want to call it an, a living amends or whatever. I mean, they're at your place with your kid. Yeah. And you're sober. Yeah. You know.
1: Right. Yeah. They don't. I mean, they used to you know, they're like, where are you going? Um, I mean, they used to find bottles around the house. Uh, when I came home to visit, I would have stashes that they didn't know about. Um, and they'd find it sometimes while I was there, sometimes while I wasn't, but they knew after a while they knew if I was drunk, um, and how, how much of a problem it was probably going to be that time. And a lot of disappointment, you know, but I, I didn't care at that time. Um, And, you know, I stayed in, going back to college, I I stayed in Tucson uh, for medical school, you know, a lot of legal issues and things like that. And
0: then I got into- What kind of legal issues, like DUI or-
1: Not yet, still. It was uh, using fake IDs, a lot of, you know, I was out there just getting very disorderly. That was like my my
0: thing. (laughs) Wait, I I used to tell Uh, people, I used to love to just get drunk and go places. You know, I don't, yeah, have I, used to go, I used to
1: go, I used to go places and not be allowed in places. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but for some reason, you know, after the first two years of med school, I think I slowed down a bit, honestly, um, because it was such a heavy, uh, load for it to, just to understand medicine. I did, you know, and I, I took it seriously. I took drinking seriously for sure, but I really, you know, I wanted to see this thing through. Um, but you know, I I was lonely too, you know, it can be isolating to be in in school. And I, I was one of those guys that studied on his own, didn't go to class really. I just did everything on my own and I picked back up after first round of exams, like really picked up in med med school. Yeah. And this is when you kind of have to, you know, do your rotations and it turned into daily drinking. And I can't tell you when. But, um, at some point I would need it in the morning. So I'd bring a water bottle, you know, empty it out, fill it with vodka, go on rounds and see patients. And, you know, I'm not really in charge of patients at this time. I'm still learning. Um, but you know, that just, that was like, yeah, I have to do this. this I can't make it through this day if I don't do it this way.
0: And how conflicted um, are you as somebody who is in, Yeah, who's educated <laughs> in the field of medicine, uh, you know yeah. i went I went to rehab with a guy who was a lung surgeon, um and he was accomplished. Yeah, yeah. and and, you know, he was drinking gin before he would, you know, you know, perform surgery. And, and and it's like that's insanity to 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 even even to us, right? me and you as as alcoholics. but it's still like but you put yourself in somebody's shoes and you as an alcoholic, you're like, I can see how it would happen. And that's crazy. yeah. now you're armed with this education as far as medicine is concerned, and you're drunk talking to patients. Is that having some kind of deep impact on you, you think? Not, not at that time because I'm looking at things
1: very objectively. Like like I hadn't found any sort of introspection or spiritual awareness. I just took it as a very matter-of-fact thing that I won't feel good if I stop drinking. I can't do my job. I can't, you know, um, I can't function because then I'm, like, completely addicted to alcohol. I physically need it. I mentally need it. Um You know, the thought of being without it is unfathomable at this point. This is like peak drunkness. (laughs) It's like, that's how I made sense of it, really. Go ahead. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to do this field of urology, which is super competitive and, um, you know, still drinking heavily. And I would show up to these interviews, you know, drinking in the hotel room beforehand, interviewing drunk, thinking, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just gonna come off real smooth. But now just looking back on it, I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone knew. Everyone just had to know. Did
0: you go to the <laughs> interviews where you thought, you know, preliminary stuff, you're like, I should get this job. And even looking back yeah. where you're like, I, I, I should have gotten that job, but you blew it in an interview of face-to-face where you were loaded?
1: Oh, a lot of them, yeah. You'd fly around the country to these, you know, big programs and you're you're, you're sitting there and they're trying to get to know you to figure out if they want to train you for the next five or six years. And there's, you know, you're, you've got a lot of great competition. Um, and if you're going to be with a guy that obviously probably didn't interview very well, uh, you know, slurring his words, bloodshot eyes, you know, not looking that great. Um, you know, you, you easily move off, off their uh, list. And I didn't get into urology the first time I, I went around that, you know, it didn't happen. So I was, I was stuck like, Oh, so what am I going to do now for a career? Like, this is all I want to do. Um,
0: was there more drinking behind that you think?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Then I got even more drunk, you know, just to kind of numb the disappointment of you go to school and train and for all this time and you don't get the one thing you want to do in your life. Uh, the drinks there for sure. Um, and I took a random non-paying job in New York city at Cornell, which is one of the, you know, country's best, best institutes. And I moved to a little apartment in New York, new town, no parents, never lived in New York, really never was that far from home. You know, I mean, my parents paid for an apartment there. It was cheaper than it is now, but it's still pretty expensive. And I don't know why they did that. I mean, you know, if, if if it was my son, I'd be like, no, this sounds bad. Um, and that was, you know, drinking maybe two fifths a day, like really, really, really drinking. Um, you could get it delivered there. They'd just deliver it right to your front door and leave it. You'd leave the money out. And that was the transaction. Um, and I would end up in the hospital that I worked at, you know, what three or four times, um, just couldn't, couldn't get it. Couldn't understand, uh, how I could live without alcohol. Had you tried but, at all
0: like to stop or were you just yeah. kind of like, because my, my, there was a point in time where I was just like, look, this is just who I am and I need this stuff to function. So I, there mm-hmm. was a long time where I didn't even try to stop.
1: Yeah. You just kind of give up on stopping. You want to, uh, you know, it's, you know, one of the scariest moments that like, The things that I said is, you know, my dad had come and he's like, what are you feeling? Like, how do you feel? And I said, I feel nothing, man. Um, and if I ever hear an alcoholic say that, I know that that person needs like extra, extra support. When you start feeling nothing, no, no emotion, no awareness at all. That's, that's like, that's very scary stuff. And I said that myself, you know, um, and, you know, he, that's probably the most worried I've ever seen him. When you feel, when you feel absolutely nothing, when you're so numb to, to the people around you, your work, your place, your purpose, I think that's a scary spot for a lot. I mean, anybody, but certainly alcoholics. alcoholic. Yeah, you know, was that, was
0: that, was that like complete apathy? Did that kind of move you towards like any kind of suicidal thoughts or anything?
1: A lot of passive stuff. I probably tried with drinking, you know, it wasn't anything active. Um, I could see how people could go a step further, but it was, you know, I just, thank God I didn't go there. Um, but a lot of passive, passive stuff, of I could like, Hey, if I, if I didn't wake up, that may be okay. Um, I don't want that, but I'd be cool with it. Um, (laughs) that, that kind of passive
0: ideation. Yeah. And so what are you doing as far as the medical, you you have a non-paying job. Uh, you're up there working for Mm -hmm. Cornell. What exactly (laughs) was your job?
1: Ah, uh, it was research, and I, 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 did some of it. I guess I don't know. I wrote <laughs> like a paper. <laughs> I wrote a paper, mostly going. I mean, in New York, you can literally walk down the street and meet a whole new set of friends, right? They're all they're alcoholics, uh, but <laughs> on on any any day, it's uh, it's an adventure, right? You like to go places. New York has a bunch of places for you to go, um, and. Interestingly, this is when I walked into my first AA meeting because I was just so physically ill. Um, I didn't really have like a moment of clarity. I, I just was like, okay, what is this AA about? I didn't reach out to anybody. I didn't have like a unicorn or, you know, someone show me the light. I kind of just said, how, how about something other than taking the drink today? Um, and I walked in. It was probably up on like 80th Street in, in York. There on the Upper East Side, um, and this lady was just telling her story. And she she was saying, you know, I, I was hiding it at work, hiding it at home, and I didn't realize other people did that, right? I was so isolated in my drinking that I, I, I didn't think, I couldn't even fathom that there were other alcoholics out there. Um, and it, it was so much truth. You know that I just walked out of the meeting. I couldn't handle it. Like I couldn't stay because I was. It was like my first glimpse that, you know, I may need to actually stop drinking, and there may be actual help for me. Like it's I like you're you're, you're you're hearing you're hearing your story,
0: but you're not ready. It's yeah. terrifying.
1: No, yeah, I was like, oh god, they're out there.
0: You, you um, you'd have been confirmed. You know, like the curiosity yeah. that you had, and it's kind of the last thing you wanna you wanna learn and confirm, but at the same time, it's an absolute gift, but yeah, you must have been kind of spooked.
1: I was. And so, ah, man. And, you know, I tried for the, you know, to get into urology is a match process. And so the whole goal of this research year was to try to match into urology once again. And I went to a bunch of interviews. Um, wasn't drinking, but I saw a doctor that had given me, Oh God, like, Valium and Ativan and all this other stuff. So it's kind of snowed on that. Um, And, you know, probably not the right method of stopping drinking. It's just switching yeah. And I didn't, I didn't match again. So that's the second time I didn't get to do the career I wanted. And I was like, what am I going to do? So I moved again. I moved to Detroit, Michigan, um, which in hindsight, was the absolute best thing I could do for Was myself.
0: that in, like an, another educational opportunity? Like in, Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, it was for Henry, Henry Ford Health System, and it was kind of more clinical stuff, so you got to work with patients. And I actually went there sober for about four months. You know, I had gone. I, I went back. It, it, before I left New York, I, I found a sponsor, uh, was working with them, still didn't understand ooh, you know, the, the program or if I wanted it, but just going through the motions really. Yeah. But you gave it a um, shot.
0: You, you kind of were like, a, gave, yeah.
1: Yeah. I gave it a shot, man. And, um, moved there. And then I think even before I started work, a friend of mine was like, Hey, you should come to La Palooza. I've got some tickets. I was like, nah, you know, I gotta start this job. Um, but then, you know, it's I remember the moment, like I'm sitting on the computer should I buy this ticket or not? And I, it, it's like, you know, when you take a fork in your life, I just clicked. Yes. You know? Yeah. And, um, that was, that was the last time, you know? Um, Dude, and I, I don't know what the hell there. that is
0: about us. Cause yeah. I did this, I had a similar experience where I, I had bottomed out. I was 27. I stopped drinking for about four months. Um, then I started smoking weed, but I didn't drink again and i moved to colorado for a job opportunity and the moment like the plane touched down in colorado i was i was kind of happy to move and i don't know if i was happy to get away from the aa or whatever but the moment i i got i got there i started to drink like right away um i <laughs> yeah. don't know i just i was not ready you know
1: yeah yeah if you're not ready you're not ready <laughs> yeah. and you know we weren't protected against that drink at that time we didn't have enough time or knowledge or reliance on a higher power, we were vulnerable and open to just doing what we knew how to do, I think. What do you say to um, the fact,
0: though, that I mean, like, because, dude, we could have died. Um Well, when, I
1: could have died many, many times. Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah. Sure. When you go back out, I mean, the fact that we make it back alive is, you know, somebody somebody says it's a miracle. Somebody says it's whatever. But I I, I look at it as a miracle because going back out there, I was like you. I was putting myself at risk daily. You know? Oh,
2: yes. Yes. Very very much so. Although it's been 20 years since the events of 9-11, many of us can still remember it like it was yesterday. America, and the world even, has never been the same. From Rafelian Media, the King of the World podcast series explores the many repercussions of that day for the American Muslim community through the journey of host Shahjahan Han, a high school senior at the time. Shahjahan's story is something our listeners will respond to. Throughout much of his young adult life, he found himself abusing drugs and alcohol as he struggled with his mental health and his identity as a Muslim in this new America post-9-11. King of the World is his story, told in seven parts. You'll learn about his struggle with sobriety and belonging alongside the major headlines of the last 20 years. Written and produced by American Muslims, King of the World is a sometimes comical, often heartbreaking, examination of adversity that all Americans need to hear. Subscribe now to King of the World, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: All right, so you so, go back, you you know, you, we, you're in Detroit or go, you're outside yeah. of Detroit. Yeah, so what happens? We fly there?
1: down, we fly, We I meet up with some buddies, we fly down to Chicago, and it's just a complete mess down there. This I don't
0: is Lava
1: Yeah, and it's just a total messy thing. You know, we're staying at a friend's house, and I end up drinking all his alcohol, he kicks me out. Uh, get a hotel next to Lollapalooza and just, you know, I'm like, oh shit, Sunday night rolls around. I got to be at work on Monday. Um, and I was like, I'm going to stick around one more day. I'll call in sick. Um, because then I was really in charge of patients and the, the thought of like operating, I, I, I could, you know, I, I've never done that. Um, operating drugs. I'm glad I did. Yeah. I just yeah. don't, I don't, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that just never I'd rather drink, right? If I'm going to be drunk, why would I want to operate? That's terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah,
0: it's funny I, now because we're sober, it, you know, but yeah, it's like if I'm going to, why, yeah. why would I want to operate if I'm drunk? Or just be drunk.
1: Yes, that's that's not, a, that's not <laughs> what I want to be doing. Um, and so I called in sick, and I, I think I got a flight back on like a Tuesday. They're wondering where am I, right? And you know, I just I load up when I get back to my apartment in Detroit for a, for a a long bender, I get like two, 1.75 liters. Like that's, that's heavy. And I I just start going through it. And, you know, um, I I wake up, I think it's on a Wednesday morning and I go, this has to stop. I'm like, you know, hallucinating. I don't know what's what I haven't eaten in a a long time. Um, I don't have any food. And so I, I don't know what it was, but I look up this addiction doctor I call him and I tell him what's going on. He's like, you should come into my office. I'm like, oh, great.
0: Are you wasted at so this time?
1: In. Yeah. Okay. I drive there on a Wednesday morning in Detroit and get pulled over right as soon as I'm about to pull into his office. And, you know, the guy, it, it, it's obvious like there's no hiding it you know i think i blew like a 0. 0.45 or something
0: whoa
1: okay yeah um that's what i was probably running a lot of the time back then and i'm a small guy i'm like
0: 150 a 0. 0.45 um, now we're talking what like how many times the legal limit you're the doctor
1: yeah so 0. 0.08 yeah times that by <laughs> like 6 almost yeah um yeah so that's but that's what I was running at a lot of the time. That's what, that was my physical dependence. Um, and so he takes me to jail right in Detroit on a Wednesday morning, cars impounded. I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm in there with some other dudes. Um, and I just, I remember the moment of clarity, man. I remember it in a Detroit jail cell and I, I was just faced with two options, you know, like, death or anything else, literally anything else but that other than, you know, leave this world, uh, you know, in an alcoholic death or something other than that. It wasn't like life. I wasn't ready for that yet. (laughs) Um, It was like, uh, you know, and I could have gone either way, but I didn't, I could have, I really felt like I either, either choice sounded okay. And, I started to go through withdrawals in jail and they can't have that in jail. So I got kicked out of jail um, and sent me to the hospital. (laughs) And, you know, my family came, I told people at work, and it was just like this sudden switch of like an outpouring of I'm sick. I need help. I still want to be a doctor, but that's not my, that's not my priority right now. I I just want to not die. Um, You know, I want my family to stop like, you know, having the most anxiety they've ever felt over, over me. It was this weird switch where I just said, this is, you know, I'm an alcoholic. This is, this is who I am. I've done all these things as the record shows. Um, and I went inpatient in Detroit for like 34 days. Um, mind you, I'd been to some other rehabs. My parents sent me to like in Malibu where they give you like a masseuse and a horse to ride on and stuff like that. I'm like, wow, this is is not going to keep me sober. And it didn't, Um, you know, the first night I got there, I got my wallet stolen. um,
0: This is the one one in Detroit.
1: Yeah. I got my (laughs) wallet stolen. Some guy like threatened me. I'm like, Oh God. Uh, Well, I'm not going to have fun here. I should probably just try the program. Um, And I did. And it just was a, you know, slow, painful process of doing, you know, they have a lot of, you know, the program comes to inpatient rehab. It's, it's there. And made some friends, you know, some people that actually wanted to stay sober. And this is right before I'm supposed to apply for my third round of trying to be a a urologist. Like I'm persistent, right? Like in my drinking and in what I want to do with my life. And, uh, I, you know, I, I just uh, – I do it, and I get out. I do inpatient rehab. I'm going to, like, a, a meeting or two every um, day. Are you – now, are I you telling people as, as
0: you're – and this is uh, – maybe it's a stupid question because I think I've already answered it in my head, but are you telling people you're sober as, you, as you're applying? Probably not, right?
1: Yeah. I asked some of my, you know, mentors. They're like, hold off until you actually get the job. like yeah. because This is this is so fresh. They're, you know, it's, yeah. it's like – we can we can see you want to get better but hold your horses yeah and, yeah. So,
0: and sometimes the reason uh, <laughs> i ask is because sometimes we go so deep into the wilderness that like it's so out there right i mean if somebody's gonna yeah. look under a rock at exactly what i've been up to it's it's like holy shit um and you yeah. say hey no, no no i'm sober but so you didn't and that's by the way the beautiful thing about the program um and about being sober or being on that path is like you know you don't know the answer you'll ask someone and if somebody in the program yeah. doesn't know the answer they'll direct you to someone, whether it's, Hey, why don't you ask one of your mentors in the medical field or, you know, like that is the beauty of this. It's the removal of the ego. Um, that, that kind of breeds itself, right? You see how the other people act that you think highly of. And it's like, Oh, like they're showing me, they don't know, but they're going to connect me with somebody who does. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is a beautiful
1: thing. And the, you know, the, the, the issue with asking for help is that, you know, it's, it's it probably behooves you to follow that advice too. That's my other thing. Like I'll I'll ask for help. You're like, interesting, you know, noted, uh, without wanting to actually follow through on that advice. (laughs) Um, But I did. And I kind of, I didn't keep it secret. I didn't, you know, that's what I was not, I was not trying to live my life with continuous lies. um, But just kind of, you know, I kept things close for a little bit. And I actually got, you know, a residency. This is come January, 2010. In San Diego, which was, you know, my number one choice. And the day I matched, I called the, the chair down there and I told him the whole deal. And he's like, let me call you back. Like he, he listened to the story that I basically told him. How you. long had you been sober uh, at that point? Oh God, it's four months. Okay. Right? Yeah. Four months. <laughs> and... I couldn't, I, you know, I couldn't convey to him that I was very serious about it this time. Right. He's like, well, what's different about this time? I said, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to, you're gonna, like, how do I know you won't drink? I'm like, you don't, you don't know that at all. Um, and
0: it's so awesome to You're so in the program that you're yeah. just being totally like, you know, yeah. just unforgivingly honest.
1: Yeah. Unforgivingly honest. You know, most times it works well. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, he's like, okay. But he he wrote this like special contract up. He's like, if you drink, we gotta, we're not gonna kick you out, but we, you know, we'll, we'll remove you, and then we'll see what happens. You know, he's like, he, I don't want to go too far into this, um, and I took that very seriously because he gave me that chance. You know, um, and I moved sober to San Diego, and got into. know told the hospital and so the hospital provided me with resources for other physicians in recovery and oh my god that was so helpful you know these guys are doing what i'm doing they have the problem that i have if i have any issues i can talk to guys that have done you know even have six months or eight months like these guys can help me um got a sponsor down in san diego that i keep in contact with still you know every week um and I think I really just flourished in residency. That's what the training was for six years. Um, and I managed, you know, to be sober going through this monitoring program yeah. where during my intern year, which is like the busiest, you know, time in a, in a surgeon's life, it's like 80 hours a week, sometimes more, um, where they'd have to randomly call me for a drug test every week. And it wasn't on site, of course. And so I basically had to tell all the residents I worked with uh, all the surgeons that I worked with, I go, this is what I have to do. You just have to let me go. Otherwise I can't, I can't, I can't come back. And they just understood, you know, it's like this brutal honesty. They're like, well, all right, go, go pee and come back. We'll cover you. And um, that kind of support, you know, really empowers you to, want to be a better doctor, want to be a better sober person. When, when people make adjustments for, you know, a very personal thing that I, that I suffer from. Um,
0: For you, is it such a relief? Because I'm here, as you're telling me this, it's just like this, putting it out there in the light um, is so, Mm -hmm. I knowing as an addict and all the shame that I, uh, which is bullshit, but the shame that I would roll Mm -hmm. with for so long, putting it out there in front of other people and seeing a positive response is just unbelievably yeah. cathartic.
1: It's very cathartic and it allows me to be my true self. I don't have to, you know, say, Oh, I got to go do something real quick. I can't tell you what, um, but just like, <laughs> which okay, is so
0: suspect, right? It's yeah, just like, yeah, that's,
1: they're like, okay, that sounds weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, eventually I, you know, I had a, pro- a California medical license. It was not something easy to obtain. And they, I told the California medical board and they put me on a probationary period and I wanted to get off this probationary period so I could apply for additional training in what I do, which is kidney stone disease and urology. And I had to have a hearing in front of a judge an attorney general up from Sacramento. And, you know, who came to testify was the chair that I had called the first day. Wow. And it, dude, it was emotional. And he got emotional. I got emotional, you know, of, of what I had done for that program. Um, you know, how I had succeeded doing all this stuff, like hearing it from an outsider's perspective, you know, we don't, I I don't like to give myself a lot of credit as, you know, I used to love doing that, but something happened where I'm very, I'm very against it because I feel like it will just go to my head. Yeah. Um, I get very, I get very uncomfortable with it and to see that I, I had, you know, I did the deal. I did what I said I was going to do. And you know, they, it was obviously it was very moving for the judge and it was just like silence after he told, he, he told, you know, the judge and the attorney general about How they should have no concerns to get me off this probationary period, give me a full and unrestricted license. And and they did. And, you know, I applied for training at the Cleveland Clinic, um, which is a great hospital. It's one of the world's best hospitals. Yeah,
0: it doesn't get any better, really.
1: You know, I went there um, and then I went to UCLA for a bit. Uh, That was, well, it wasn't the right first job. Um, but I had some things happen in sobriety, right. As, as
0: life happens,
1: as life happens. Well, you know, I was married. I, I met my wife actually in that initial period in Detroit, um, called it off for a couple of years. She moved to San Diego and we got, we got married. Um, and then as soon as we moved to LA, we had, you know, the first day we moved was father's day. And, you know, she told me she was pregnant with our, our first boy and I got very excited about that. And the, you know, the ultrasound didn't look good from you know around 20 weeks. Um, they thought he didn't have a left leg growing in. Um, and so that was just, you know, your first child, he did, he did have, some leg, but they basically, everyone told us he needs an amputation at six months to start walking. And, you know, I, I actually saw, you know, try to see the bright side on that. I'm like, at least it's just a leg. Everything else is developing normally. It's going to suck. Um, but when he came out, he had all his bones and all that sort of stuff. And he does need surgery and we're actually going to, you know, schedule it sometime in a a few months. Um, how old is he? now? He's three. He gets around just fine, but he needs surgery and then you know i continue to do aa um so what
0: yeah what's your program looking like i mean this is heavy stuff
1: yeah 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 and so so the ucla job didn't work out uh i left it i was unemployed during covid as a doctor which is kind of crazy but i was you know i was not actually in a good spot back then because the job was just not not great it, it was you know, I was offered a certain job and as soon as I moved out there, they had told me they hired somebody else for it and that, you know, a lot of resentment had built up and eventually I just had to leave that job and unemployed during COVID. And I said, you know what, I'm going to dig into my program, uh, dig into my health, my mental health, and really just kind of make myself stronger before I, I jumped back in because this career is all about longevity because burnout will happen. Um, Frustrations. people quit this field all the time it's happening more and more and i love what i do so i didn't want that to happen so i took the time to just dig into the program um, with my new sponsor out in la and this job in virginia just came up um you know i'd never been out here uh and it was it looked like the perfect job for me uh, in terms of what i do for kidney stones and it was and it was nice because i could join up meetings in Virginia before I ever moved out there through zoom. And so I already had a home group before (laughs) I never met these guys. Like, like for me to have that sort of wherewithal and um, insight is that's like very unlike me, you know, it's not of, it's not of
0: you. It's not of me.
1: No, I'm like, let's move somewhere else. And you know, maybe I'll drink, maybe I won't screw it. Uh, I don't know what'll happen, but let's, let's, you know, play it, play it by ear. Like shooting pistols in the air. like. Um, and I got here and I, I just, I dug in and there's a gr- great group of guys down here. We have a fellowship. I'm part of their home group. I'm you know, secretary, um, sometimes and, um, life happened again. You know, my wife became pregnant and our, our baby girl came three months early this April. She was supposed to come in July and, you know, that, just that just, she was in the NICU, the neonatal ICU for three months. And normally, if that sort of stuff would have happened to me, I would have distanced myself, drank, and but I just dug in, you know? Like, you know, like my entire family's relying on me, man. This little one-pound girl is completely helpless. It was one of these things where, you know, I was powerless. I was 100% helpless. I could be there for her, but, you know, medically speaking, there was some – really great doctors taking care of her but all I could do was be there and that's all I had to do really you know
0: yeah and that's what we learn. like it's uh, it's a lot bigger than us just sometimes just showing up is enough like you know like did you feel like you didn't have the power to fix everything was there a point in time where you were like I just got to turn this over
1: so much fear right um, I'm not one of these guys that says yeah I've conquered my fear I don't I have fear but the 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 gift is I know how to deal with it now. I can still have it, put it somewhere and proceed despite, um, that, that being present. It's, it's like, a it's a, it's an acknowledgement of one's fear because I try not to, you know, my, my ego tells me that I have no fear. You, sh- you, you do what you need to do. Fear is, fear is, fear is for suckers. Um, and as a surgeon, you know, we, You know, the the ego thing is just, it's a nightmare because it's so ingrained in the job and you, you know, you want your, you want your doctor to be confident, not fearful, but man, um, I'm, I'm my best self, you know, surgeon, dad, husband, when, when I can acknowledge my limitations. Understand that there's fear and then proceed in a logical way.
0: (laughs) Well, dude, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. You have the perspective on your fear, so you know what you need to do to get through it, whether it's talking to another alcoholic, whether it's digging into your program, like you said, being of service, or just showing up. You know what to do with that fear. Before, you know, did you feel like you had that fear and you didn't know what to do with it and you would just drink or or, or panic? Yeah, I
1: mean, yeah a lot of anxiety fear and drinking i mean what a horrible band aid that is um because it doesn't do anything to it it's like uh it it's not very effective right it's effective in in blacking things out and pouring you know just blackness all over it but it it only adds fuel to the fire really at the end of the day um but when you're in it there's you know the the focus is so narrow when you're in the throes of it. There's, it's, it's a simple life, honestly, you know. Um, you know the, first, the first step is, you know, I'm powerless over alcohol, and my life is unmanageable. I, I was managing just fine. I was managing great because all I had to do was focus on drinking. That was how I was managing. I didn't, that's not unmanageable. <laughs> that's <laughs> what I would tell myself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, told, I'm managing just fine, everyone. I don't have anything to worry about because I choose not to focus on anything else. Um, And now that I know like the full spectrum of life, I I don't know. I don't know why I would ever go back there because I just, I know too much now I have, (laughs) I have, you know, I have the, I had the gift of desperation definitely in the beginning, but now I have, um, I guess it's called the gift of um, abundance. Now,
0: what was it like for I you? Have, yeah. Well, go ahead, go ahead. You have what? I don't want to cut you off.
1: Yeah, the the gift of abundance. Yeah. Like I have my wonderful family. I have this job. I have this group of AAs, and new guys come in, and we dig in, man. We just dig in because I I I I hate seeing guys in that position. I I really don't it makes me uncomfortable because it reminds me so much of myself and how terrible I felt. Right. I can't, I can't overlook that. I see myself in them. I can't, I can't just not pay attention to it. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but you feel it in your gut. You feel it for these alcoholics who still suffer.
0: Yeah, it gets uncomfortable, right? You're in a meeting and everybody's yeah. like, here's my life. That's great. Like you said, I got a life of abundance because this, that, and the other thing. And somebody walks in and they're like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I got a day and I'm just trying to hang on here because if I drink, I'm going to go to prison. And then you're like, whoa. Yeah. You know, and and, and I, I know exactly what you mean. It's uncomfortable. Um, and it's it's one of those things where the pilot light turns on, right? Not that it isn't on already, but you're like, okay. What can I do to be of service and to help this person? Uh, cause moving towards that is what works for me. Mm -hmm. What about, I want to, I want to ask you about, uh, you know, substance abuse, is not uncommon with doctors. Uh, you know, uh, what is it about it, you know, specifically Mm -hmm. for you that, that you think made you susceptible? What is it about being, being a doctor? There's so much you guys deal with stress, burnout. Uh, you know, some of the learning. Uh, Michelle, my girlfriend says it's uh who's, mm-hmm. who's friends with you. She says it's, it's shame based right. sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Well, Michelle, you know, M- Michelle and I did residency together. And I, I, I helped her out through some tough times, but we went through a lot of this stuff together. And I just think that, you know, some of the best doctors I know and some of the best alcoholics I know are just sensitive people. We, we will not let you know that <laughs> we will go to the grave to avoid letting people know that we're very perceptive and we're very sensitive um, because it's almost too much for us to handle, you know, all this, you know, people come to us at their darkest hour and we have the skills, but the skills are just part of it. It's the, it's it's the being able to relate. You know, I've heard, you know, in, in our field, I've just, and and in alcoholism, I've just heard you know, just gut-wrenching stories of, of suffering. Um, and we're, I'm sensitive to that now. And some people, they don't want that. They don't want to feel that. They want to feel something else. And I can, it's understandable. Right. And so the stress of that, of, of, of being a caretaker can, can lead people down this path and, I I hadn't mentioned this, but starting in residency, I started talking to med students about my story because it's a crazy story of bringing vodka into see patients, you know, and getting pulled over on a Wednesday with, you know, what should be a a dead blood alcohol level, um, you know, to where I am now, I think just telling my story can, can help people. I don't, I don't try to, I, I can't tell you, I'm like, Hey, you shouldn't become an alcoholic. That'll be really bad for you. Um, that's not the, that's not any sort of good advice, but that even if you do end up in this spot, there's a path and it can be weird and crazy, um, and you know, uncomfortable, but there's a, there's a way out and it just sucks when I hear these stories of physicians, especially during COVID, we know of some, you know, urology resident and there's a high level of suicide and self harm. And. I tell, this is one of my things I tell to trainees and other doctors. I'm like, this, this profession that we chose is meant to empower you to help people. It's not meant to break you, break you down and make it sound like, you know, suicide or substance abuse is the best option for you. That's a, that's a failure of our field. I think if that's what it ends up as. And so I still try to do that. I still try to talk to residents and trainees about, you know, the importance of, of self-care, whatever that is. Not everyone's going to be an alcoholic, but there has to be some outlet for you. There has to be some awareness of how you can be your best doctor. That's what I really want for all doctors. But the, the reality is it doesn't always end up like that, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, it's like whatever your healthy outlet is, because I, I can't even imagine what some of the stresses. That you guys you guys deal with, and, you know, a, a lot of your quote unquote success is, is is outcome based. Have you ever struggled with that on the other side of, of you mm-hmm. know, sobriety being in sobriety because out, bad outcomes happen,
1: right? Like I uh, I'm a I'm a card carrying member of the imposter syndrome club. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, you know, if I have a issue with the with a surgery, you know, I'll fall on all the swords. I will, you know, but it gets to you. It does, you know, and you try your best, but sometimes the outcome is not, not what you want it. Um, and so I really dig in with the family members and the patients and let them know, you know, sorry, if this happened, but I'm here. Like that's the, you know, like I said, sometimes all you can do is be present and let other people know that you're there. And I've never regretted saying that, you know, um, but once they realize that obviously, you know you're suffering the most um i don't want my suffering to compare to that but i i'm here for you and whatever you need I, i'm there i think it, you know if i was in my you know prime time alcoholic thinking i'd be like yeah it happened so what let's you know this happened this sort of stuff happens. um you know that's where the program comes in it's 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 not not necessarily an amends uh, as you know i I caused this, or there's many factors that go into complications um but you know I was part of this issue, but I'm here. What can I do now that this has happened like that's always the part of the amends that uh maybe glossed over it's you know uh reconciling your past, making your amends, but then the follow up is is there anything else you need from me that I can do for you to yeah. help with this situation um and that open-ended question has has really helped me out through a lot of tough times. Is you know this was my part. Now, now what? Now what should we do?
0: Do you find relief in 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 the twelve steps, uh, being a doctor because you have to surrender in our program, but there's a great amount of control that you need as as mm-hmm. a surgeon. I, I, like yeah, d- is is that helpful
1: to you? It absolutely is right. Um, I used to like in the beginnings of sobriety. I'm like, and I hear some people have said this. You know, I have a high stress job. This is just how I am, and I stopped believing that um, because well, I think it's a poor excuse for behavior. <laughs> uh, your your job shouldn't define how you treat other people. Um, but it, you do carry some of it home, and there has to be some sort of separation. But you know, I'm not. I was not born an empathic person whatsoever. Um, like I'm i I'm a guy at the grocery store. Like if the checkout person says, how you doing? I'm like, fine. <laughs> <laughs> like you're, right. But yeah. you're supposed to say, I'm, w- I'm well, how, how about, how about you? Yeah. you know, that for me to do, do that is a real struggle, man. Yeah. Um, that's like not part of my DNA. And so this whole empathy thing is like, it, it's a learning process for me. I was, I did not come pre-programmed with that sort of thinking whatsoever Um, because obviously it's all about me 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 so when when true empathy comes to me it's god it's uncomfortable but at the end is like um it's peace right that's what i want at the end of the day is just some peace of mind and if i can try to understand somebody else's um situation and what my part is and understand that what i do has an effect on people this type of behavior of I'll do whatever I want and people have to deal that's not what I'm striving to be that's not how you know my life gets better that's how it gets worse for sure all
0: right I got a couple more I got a couple more things uh, for you before I let you let you go um because this is uh, this is unreal what just this is specific to to you being uh, a doctor COVID uh, you know we talk about everything that it happened to us as a society, right? Like, oh, COVID affected me like this. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, in the healthcare profession, people are coming to you. And I think mm-hmm. not enough people, or at least I haven't heard the question asked to to a doctor, how has, like, like the alcohol, like, like the substance abuse in the healthcare industry, how have you seen that at all? Yeah, yeah, we've
1: seen... Um through COVID, you know, we do hear, of uh, more substance abuse. There's, you know, the, the physicians that are dying by suicide. Um, and I don't know what the reasons are, right. But people are being stretched to what, to points where we didn't think they could be stretched to. And everyone has a breaking point, man. Um, luckily I'm in a field that, you know, I, I haven't been affected that much. Obviously, I've been affected by it by, in terms of if I can do surgeries or not, but there are, like, frontline workers, and some of them are not doing well. Um, I know drinking has gone up for just, you know, citizens around the country. Um, and for our programs, it was it was a problem because you're wondering where are these newcomers and what's going on outside of our Zoom meetings, what's happening with them. Um, and we all had to adjust to that. And but I've seen really good success stories of, of people, you know, getting completely sober on Zoom and then finally making it to some in-person meetings. But as it relates to, to healthcare workers, uh, you know, we we do see it, t- it. takes a toll. And substances, unfortunately, are an easy out. That's that's the unfortunate thing about our field. Um, it's it's a, it's an easy out with you know sometimes disastrous consequences um it's been tough for everyone
0: for sure how about your relationship with music now i know you were a dj uh, <laughs> we're, and i'm sure you know this is a whole another another uh, conversation but because i'm sure there's a, there's a, a lot to unpack but as a dj was substance a part of that? And and, and and when you got sober, how were you able to rediscover music? Because for me, a lot of the things I did, that it was bullshit. It was a lie I told myself. But anything creatively I did, I needed alcohol and drugs yeah. to fuel. And then when I got sober, oh, sure. I had to relearn all that.
1: Yeah, there's, a, there's just a deeper appreciation because you wonder, like, oh, did I just like the music for all the drinking and the partying? And then you revisit some of the things that you really, you know, the music you love. Like for me, it's like like mid nineties, like house music, like that's it for me. Right. And so getting back into that um, and then getting the you know, the keyboard out, the synth, and y- you realize that the, the things you, you love, you still love, it's almost a deeper understanding because kind of when you, when you're drunk, you're not, you don't have your full, you know, awareness of it. Your, your attention is somewhat there, but it's, for me, it just wasn't real. at at that time. And, but in my heart, it's like, I knew I loved surgery. I knew I loved music and rediscovering these things as as a sober person. And now the cool thing is, you know, showing it to my kids who, who love, uh, you know, electronic music and, and showing them all these things that that I loved growing up and, and teaching it to them as a sober person is it just brings on a whole new meaning. It's, It's amazing.
0: What are you going to teach your kids about sobriety? Or or, or or, if you have already, you have, you have two, right? Yeah. Okay. So what do you, plan- yeah. will, will there ever be something you will say to them? Or is that just something that you're going to deal with organically down the road?
1: Yeah. I think, I think the thing is, um, he's his own person, right? He's my kid, but he's, I'm just, I'm just borrowing him from the universe for a little while. <laughs> um, you know, he's his own entity and, he may have this thing. He may not. He he will know that dad has, goes to these meetings, um, and dad has friends, and we don't we don't drink. He'll know that. But I'll just you know the only thing that ever helps me help other people is telling my story of what I went through. And when you do that, um, you're doing that without judgment, I think if I just tell my own story, uh, this is what dad went through. It was very scary. You know, uh, there were there were times when. I probably wasn't going to make it, but I, but I did. Telling your own story has a has a great effect rather than me telling him like, "Hey, if you drink, you're going to have you know a bad life." He may drink and not have a bad life. I don't know. I don't know these things. Um, but he'll know my story for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's I. I have yet to meet, and I'm biased, uh, but I have yet to meet the child of a practicing sober alcoholic that doesn't have once it's, once they're able to, or once they're able to have an opinion, doesn't have real good things to say about their parents. Um, right. You know, somebody exactly. who's practicing, <laughs> practice, I guess, practicing the program. Um, you know, they usually have a real good feel about their folks. All right. Anything else? I'm going to let you get back to your life. This is unbelievable. Anything else you want to say? I always like to ask people this. What do you say to the person, um, that's just trying to get a day?
1: Ah, oh, that's such a you know, this person trying to get a day. There's there's so many good cliches that keep coming back. And what I what I say to the actual newcomers, you know, I ask them, I'm like, what do you want the rest of your life to look like, right? Because that that determines so much. If you can, you know, you we're sober for just a day, but obviously we're, we're we're thinking a little bit outside of that as well. And it, it kind of, it helps me to think about a, a life that was free of the burden of, of alcoholism. What do I want the rest of my life to look like? Um, I think it is, is a good question because it, it, it can, it can mean the difference sometimes between staying in the program. Sometimes the answer will be like, I don't know. I, I all I know is drinking and that person is probably not ready. Right. Um, but if the answer is, I, I want it to look like having you know some freedom and peace of mind, then then that's the time to dig in and and start really working with this person because you know obviously we're not ready until we're ready, and I wasn't ready so many times, yeah. and and that I, I can't force someone to be ready. I, the, the, there's no way that I don't know if anybody has ever convinced somebody to say like you're ready right now. That's what a sponsor's for, but it's an internal switch, like I had mentioned, that something happens. You reach out to whatever is outside of yourself, and for me, it was, a you know, the floodgates open. I said, I want my life to look like, you know, something with that is anything other than an alcoholic death that just opened up a world of possibilities. It's like a, a simple thing that most people would be like, yeah, dummy, of course you should not die an alcoholic death. But that was my, that was the crux of my life. That was the question I needed to ask myself.
0: <laughs> dude. so this has been unbelievable. I, and I can't thank you enough for your time, man. Uh, you know, it's very clear why Michelle is so fond of you now. And, uh, awesome. I, I, I seriously, dude, I cannot thank you enough. Awesome. Pete.